You know how uh, every time I come up here, I usually share a story, right? It's usually something about my life or something that's out there in culture. And the reason why I do that every time that I open a sermon is to bring you in, right? I don't want to come cold and hard right out the gate and introduce you to uh, the topics that we have uh, in Scripture and apply it in your lives. I usually want to warm you up a little bit, right? But today I don't have a need to do that because we're talking about sex. And so... (laughs) There's no need to, I already got you. I already have you. And, uh, and so that's that. But um, let me tell you a few things just before we get into the text. And that is, uh, here at Crossbridge, about two times a year, we touch on this topic because we live in a very sexualized culture, a very sexualized city. And it's important that we have these conversations at church. Some people are saying, hey, why are we having these conversations at church? Here's why we're having these conversations at church. Because if we don't have these conversations at church, then you will buy into the vision for sex that our culture is preaching to you on a constant basis. And it's a lot. It's a lot of content that comes to you all the time. Whether, you know, they're selling, I don't know, cleaning products or trips, there's always sex in there, right? And it, and it's And it's casting a vision, a particular vision that's not necessarily in line with the vision of Scripture. So it's important that we do here at church. And that's what we're doing here today. We're talking about sex from a biblical standpoint. Secondly, uh, I am going to the book of Proverbs. I have here a copy of the book of Proverbs. I, I, I usually like to start off with the book of Proverbs. You know why? Because in the New Testament, there's a lot of passages that the Apostle Paul and other, other apostles write to the churches. And they address this issue of sexual immorality, but it's always reactive because there's a problem in the church. And so they're saying, hey, what you're doing is wrong. This is not in line with scriptures. It's reactive. I like Proverbs as we introduce this topic for two reasons. Number one, it's the book of wisdom. So there's a lot of wisdom here. And then secondly, it's poetry. And so if you're talking about love and sex, you've got to go into poetry. All right? So, so this book helps us with that. And therefore, as we're going through the sermons, we're going to, through the sermon today, we're going to point out to certain passages in Proverbs that use poetic language. And so pay attention because, you know, it requires thinking and meditation and interpretation. And so I want to invite you to open... Uh, your Bibles. Uh, we're going to read from Proverbs 5, Proverbs 11, and Proverbs 30. And uh, this is what the scripture says. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is on the screen. Uh, Proverbs 5. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets and your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. This is the Bible, by the way. Proverbs 11 now, a couple verses from Proverbs 11. Beautiful women obtain wealth and violent men get rich. A woman who is beautiful but lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig snout. We'll get to that. And then from Proverbs 30. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a maiden. This is the way of the adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you were afraid of saying thanks be to God after that last verse. I get you. 
So today, what are we going to do with these passages? First, we're going to talk about God's vision for sex. We're going to cast God's vision for sex. Then we are uh, going to talk about God's manual for sex. There's a vision, and then there's a manual. There's guidelines, guardrails that must be respected in order for that vision to come into completion and fulfillment in our lives. And then lastly, we'll talk about the hope for sex. Because the truth of the matter is that all of us here in this room, we have one way or another expressed our broken sexuality. That's part of our story. We have been affected by the brokenness of others and our brokenness has manifested itself because we're all sinful people here today. And none of us here in this room today, when we talk about this topic, has it all together in this area, including me. And so we find hope in the word of God today. So first, what is God's vision for sex? I don't know if you were paying attention to the reading, but there is a vivid illustration here, a vivid image of what sex is, and that is water. He talks about cisterns and fountains. It is water. And think about water. Water is refreshing. Water is life-giving. We need water to exist. A great part of our bodies are made of water. A high percentage of our bodies are made up of water. And the point that the Bible here is making as water is good, so is sex. Sex is not bad. Sex is good. God created sex. Go back to the first couple chapters of Genesis. God created sex. And it is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And as you go through this metaphor, he uses sex as this imagery, uh, as water. He, he, he then now delineates what female sexuality is and what male sexuality is here in, in the text, he compares women's sexuality in verse 15 to a cistern, to a well that you go in for water, and male sexuality in verse 16 as a fountain that spews forth water. I don't need to go into that. Uh, I think you already got it. But the Bible, the point, the point of the matter is this, is that the Bible it had offers a very unique view of sexuality that, number one, doesn't see sex as filth nor see sex as food. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Doesn't see it as filth or as food. Well, in the religious environment, in the religious space, oftentimes, and maybe you were raised in an environment such as this. Maybe this is what your household was like. You don't talk about this. This is dirty. This is uncomfortable. It's filth. It's not the Bible. And as I was giving you this picture, this metaphor, I saw some people very uncomfortable. Actually, when I was at our Kiba Skin campus preaching this text this morning, as I gave that, those two imageries, somebody just put their Bible over their heads. <laughs> and if you think that that's not supposed to be in the Bible or this conversation should happen at church, maybe you're holier than God <laughs> because God doesn't mind talking about it openly and in this way. It's not filthy. Bible treats as something that is beautiful, but it's, it's, it's not food either. Did you pay attention in the last verse that we read, the verse that made some of you uncomfortable in saying this is the word of the Lord? Um, in, in, in Proverbs 30, 20, let me read it again. This is the way of the adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. What he's saying here is that in our culture and the culture that is standing in opposition 
to the principles of scripture, sex is treated as food, as just something, a, com- a commodity. You just, you just eat, you wipe your mouth, and that's it. I have, I have done nothing wrong. And, and this is the conversation that we have with people. Uh, and if you're a Christian, you've had conversations with people. They say, oh, well, this is something normal. It's just instinctual, just like food. And if I'm hungry, I eat. And if I uh, have a sexual desire, I, I just let it out and just find a, somebody that I can do that consensually with. Uh, this is normal. This is natural. It's part of what it means to be a human. It, it, it's, it's attached to our humanity, our animalistic nature. And, and, it, and therefore, there's no big deal about it, right? They try to demystify that. They take away the glory and the beauty and the sacredness of sex, turn it just into slavery like food, just like appetite that you satiate. And the Bible doesn't have this view of sex either. Did you you pay attention to the verses that we read in Proverbs 30? I don't know if you were paying attention to the verses. But the writer of Proverbs, in this case Solomon here, he gives us some amazing metaphors. Now we, we leave this water metaphor and we get, get to another set of metaphors now in chapter 30. There are three things that are too amazing for me and four that I do not understand. The first one is the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and this is the fourth one, and the way of a man with a maiden. He is, he is illustrating sexuality from the standpoint of scripture to these four images. Now think about that. How many of you have a poster in your house or a, or some, or a painting of an eagle flying soaring in the skies? And there, there were these very popular ones that came out in the 90s, you know, with pictures of eagles soaring and underneath it, uh, the word freedom, right? It's unbelievable. It's beautiful. It's inspiring. A bird that can fly at that level of, of, of heights and that, that type of altitude for the time that it can do that. And, and, and it's inspiring to us. It's a picture, it's a picture of, of freedom. And then think about a ship too. You know, you, you've probably seen that as well. Like I was watching this video the other day of this massive cargo ship going through a massive storm in the Atlantic, just going up and down these swells with all those cranes. But they manage to stay afloat, and it's, a, it's unbelievable, and it's beautiful. And he's saying, those images are fascinating. Oh, and there's a snake, too, slithering over a, a rock. And he says, you know, think about a snake that moves through this hard terrain without limbs. I mean, all those things are unbelievably fascinating. And those images are inspiring to us. They are, they're beautiful. This idea of soaring, this idea of sailing, right, is, is mysterious and beautiful and inspiring. And he says this is how God created sex to be. It's, it's for our good. It's for our benefit so that we would soar, so that we would sail, so that we would be free. But, 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 then, but then take these, these images that he presents to us here as metaphors for sex in the way that God has created. And, and, and you start to go deep into it and you begin to realize uh, the following. And that is that in order for an eagle to fly that way, it needs a pair of wings. It needs to re- respect the laws of physics. And for a ship in the same fashion, you cannot sail a ship if there's a hole in the vessel because the laws of physics will take you under. And will make you crash. And so unless you're very mindful of that, unless you are very mindful of the laws that you must respect, 
If you embark in any of these journeys, if you decide to take sex out of the boundaries that God has established, it can only lead to breakdown. And the fact of the matter is that many of us are here in this room today, and the reason for our brokenness, the reason for our pain, the reason for uh, a heavy weight of shame that many of us carried, it's because these guardrails were disrespected. Which leads us into the second point, which is, which is God's playbook for sex. God's guidelines. God's manual for sex. The first thing that we learn, and it's very clear here in this text, is if you are going to soar, if you are going to uh, feel as free as a sailor out in the ocean on a sailboat, being blown by the winds on your sail. If you're going to have that experience of delight in your life, you must not ignore the warnings that are in God's manual. And the first one is, which is here in the text, is you should not attempt this outside of the boundaries of marriage. God created sex uniquely, uniquely, sorry, uniquely and exclusively to be practiced within the boundaries of marriage. Look. Go back to the text. Verse 16. Should your springs over... He's talking to... It's a, it's, a, it's a professor talking to a student. A mentor talking to the mentee. Verse 16. Should your springs overflow in the streets and your streams of water in the public squares? And you're like, well, he's not talking about that. That sex should be exercised only within the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. Oh, yeah, he is, because in verse 17, he says, let them be yours alone and never to be shared with strangers. And, and then it, 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 he, he goes and builds even more. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. It's supposed to be exercised within the confines of marriage. I marry people all the time, and every time that I marry people, the essence of the wedding, and I tell them, as I'm doing the premarital counseling with them, are the vows. That, that's, what, that's what makes a wedding a wedding, a true wedding a wedding. It's not the, the music. It's, it's not the processional nor the recessional. The element, it's not even the sermon. What makes a wedding a wedding legitimate are the vows that you take. When you make a commitment to the other person that they come first, you are first, meaning this is my relationship of priority, not my friends, not my parents. I left and cleft, okay? Not my parents, not my children, not the children that we will have, but you. Not my boss, not my employees. That's my relationship of priority. You come first. You're first. The vows also say not just that you're first, but only you, only you, no one else, only you. It's an exclusive relationship. Between the two of you. And then thirdly, what you're saying in the vows, I'm summarizing the vows. What you're saying in the vows that you repeat or that you have repeated is that all of mine is yours. All for the two of us. Everything together. And what you in essence are saying is not only that that relationship is your relationship priority, not only that that is a relationship that's exclusive, but then thirdly, you are saying that everything is yours is now 
your spouses and everything that's your spouse now has become yours. There's a complete union that has taken place. And those vows are a covenant that you have said verbally and then you have to sign. The state requires that you sign the papers too. That's what that means. That everything now is together. That you have become, that you're committing your life to that person. And you're becoming one emotionally. Their emotional problems are now your emotional problems. You can't say those are your problems. Those are not my problems. You can't say that after you're married. They're your problems. Your finances are your spouse's finances now. You can't say your debts are yours and my money is mine. You can't say that. According to the biblical vision for marriage, it's all together. You're one spiritually. And that's why there's an issue with sometimes Christian marriage and non-Christians. Because you're saying, my God is your God and your God now is my God. That's what's supposed to happen in the context of marriage. And God creates sex, not just for the reproduction of the human species, but he creates sex for delight, for enjoyment. There's the images that we've talked about before. But he does that to build oneness, complete oneness within those that have taken those vows to be one in life. And every time that sex is exercised within the confines of marriage, there's a covenant renewal that happens and takes place. That's why it must be often. And that's why Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church that if you're going to take a break, it's got to be for mutual agreement, for prayer, but you should come back together. Because every time that sex is exercised, uh, the souls communicate, right? Um, there's a mingling of the souls. Sex ha- is a language that souls speak to one another. And when that is happening and taking place, you are saying to that person that you are in bed with, I am exclusively, primarily, and fully committed to you. That's, that's the message that's being sent every time that sex is being practiced, regardless with who. Why? Because God created it that way. Every time that sex happens, this language is communicated between souls. It may not be verbal, but at the soul level, that happens and takes place. Now, here's why the Bible says it has to be exercised only within the confines of marriage. Because if you come and say, hey, listen, I've already talked to the person. What's the harm? You know, we're in agreement. We're adults. Uh, we're, we're just saying, hey, we're just doing this for fun. Okay, you go and you practice that, but your souls cannot help but to decipher the message, this message of exclusivity, of, prior, of priority, and of completeness that comes across when there's a sexual act. And the problem is this, is when you do that at that soul level, and you get up from that bed and you look at someone in the face, and that commitment that was practiced in the flesh does not match the commitment of life that you have made, that destroys you. That's why some women sometimes they get hurt when the guy doesn't call her back. You know what that does? That destroys your trust mechanism, destroys this trusting apparatus that God has built inside of you. And what happens is all of your continuous relations will become more and more dysfunctional and you'll begin to lose your humanity in the process and kill other people's humanity because now you're treating people as a means to an end. And so that's why the Bible says 
Don't do it. Now, I'm not coming here this morning from a standpoint of condemnation. We're, we're not coming here and saying, hey, uh, you should feel shame for this. Like I said in the beginning, so we're all broken and we all have faced consequences for the ways in which we have taken this out of God's goodwill. Secondly, the Bible is, is very clear as well. It's, it should be done to give, not to take. And the verse that stands out here that we read is verse 16 from Proverbs 11. It says, beautiful women obtain wealth and violent men get rich. Serve in scriptures, uh, 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 sex in scriptures is created by God as a means to serve and to affirm others versus to use and to exercise power. The opposite of the biblical vision of sex, which is to serve, is to use sex for control. And he talks about it here in this verse that we read because how many people have used sex as a way to get security and comfort in life? He talks here about certain women. You know, you some, you've probably seen pictures of these beautiful women at the beach with these, you know, horrible-looking men. And I'm not saying that they're horrible, looking, that they're horrible people because we don't know the people that are behind those bodies. <laughs> but you can only assume... And what he's saying here is that beautiful women, they use their looks, they use their sex appeal to get the places and to secure things in life. And he's saying that's not the way that sex was created to be exercised. And all of our deviances, speaking of men too, flow from this need to exercise control and power. Well, I mean, what is pornography? What is every sexual deviation? Is the need that you have to be in control of a situation because you are not able to be in control of your sexuality in the past. And so you enter into a, an extremely controlled space so that you feel a little bit better about yourself because you know you have lost all control in life. You know, Dan Allender uh, you, talks about this very deep. Uh, this is as deep as I'll go today. But, but he says this, all the, the, the sexual deviated fantasies flows from the fact that, you know, we are angry at God. And we blame God for the life that we have had. And because we cannot get back at God, we take someone that was created in the image of God and we exercise power and control over them because we can't defile him, we'll defy his image. And that's dark. And the Bible says that's not God's design. And then uh, thirdly, it's, to focus on the big picture, not on what's on the surface. Sexuality in scripture should be, uh, is, is, is commending us, is compelling us to see the bigger picture instead of that which only is revealed at the surface level. Verse 22 of Proverbs 11, a woman who is beautiful but lacks discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Now, I was thinking about this metaphor, and I, I was wrestling. I, I don't know if I should bring this metaphor forth because it's kind of a disgusting uh, metaphor. Um, but it's a good metaphor. And that is, you know, think about this. Look, look at the metaphor. You're walking down the street, and you see a golden ring, a piece of jewelry. You're like, wow, beautiful, except it's in the dirt. And you reach out for it. You're so attracted to it, and you reach out for it. And when you yank it out, the hog comes with it, filled with mud. 
And what the, what, what the writer of Proverbs is saying is if you go for that which is on the surface, oh, I, I want that person just because that person looks this way or that person has power or that person has money. And that, that's what makes you attracted to someone. It's kind of like going for the golden ring, but the hog comes with it as well. And some of you have a mess in your lap because that's what you went for. And you didn't look at the partner in the holistic way. The person you wanted to spend life with, the person that God may be bringing into your life for your own good and your own sanctification, your own maturity, your own growth. Some young people pass out amazing spousal prospects because they go for the ring and they get the hog with it. And if you go for the whole person, that's what the Bible is saying, is if you go for the whole person, you'll get the gold. But if you go for the gold, you'll get the hog. So look at the whole picture. And then lastly, do not worship sex. Sex is a signpost that points out to the creator of it. In fact, verse 18, is, it's a prayer. A prayer asking God for health and life-givingness in the context of sex. May your fountain be blessed and you rejoice in the wife of your youth, which is a gift of God to you. Let her breasts satisfy you. It's a prayer for health. It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prayer for intimacy. And God is obviously saying through this passage and others, I don't want you to lose the focus that I'm what's at the other side of this. And the glorious intimacy that you can ever experience in this life, in the best, in the purest marriages are only a foretaste of the ultimate delight that you will experience in all of eternity with me. It's a picture of what it means to be eternally united to Christ. Marriage points to the relationship between Christ and the church. <laughs> That's what Paul writes about in Ephesians 5, isn't it? That's the idea. But the problem in our culture, and, and it wasn't a problem in that culture, I think, uh, to, they, they didn't idolize romance because back in those days you didn't get married for romance. Who cared about romance? <laughs> you, you married back, that, back in those days in order to advance your name and your family's name. That, that's what you did. Who cares about, you know, oh, I'm in love with that person. And, and, the, and, and therefore the Bible has this really unique countercultural vision even to that culture back in those days. But to our culture, we do worship romance and sex. Man, even an action movie. Sometimes, I, you know, I like action movies. Like, you know, yeah, watch it. They put like this silly romance in there. It's like, why are you doing that? That adds nothing to the plot. <laughs> Take it up. But unless you put some form of sex in there, it doesn't sell nowadays. Look at the songs, the obsession. Look at all the apps that have been created for people to connect and to find romance in life. We're obsessed with this thing. And the reason why we are obsessed with this is because we have replaced God for the love partner. That's what our culture has done. Our culture has stopped looking at God and has looked at the love partner for this, as the Savior. And, and even the Disney movies are all about that. And I had to grow up, uh, I had to, uh, uh, you know, tell my kids growing up, my girls, I have four girls, this, this Prince Charming will never will exist. You'll never find this in life. I know Disney tells you that. Happily ever after, you know, people are broken and, and imperfect. And 
you, you should not live your life trying to find that person because you will never find that person. Ernest Becker, who is an atheist and wrote a book on this titled The Denial of Death, he, he confirms it. Look, look at what he says here in the quote. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, of the Disney movies. For perfect validation, we expect them to make us good through love. Needless to say, human partners can't do this. So we stop our pursuit and hopefully up to this point you're saying, amen, <laughs> I have not followed these guidelines. These guidelines have not been followed in my life. And no wonder we are the way that we are and empty and miserable. Our cisterns are empty and our fountains do not flow forth water. Including Solomon who wrote this. <laughs> Especially Solomon who wrote this. Just look at his life. It was a mess in this area. So what do we do? Do, do, we, do we end the sermon here feeling bad about ourselves and just going home and Pastor Philippe says we're all screwed up and messed up? Is that how we end our, our time here? Or, or do we say here, let's do this. Let's, let's get it together and let's stop these practices and, and let's embrace these principles. That doesn't work either. I know. So what do we do? Where's the hope? A thousand years later, the ultimate lover, God in the flesh, who loves his people, came into this world. And he calls himself the groom after his bride. And then in John chapter 4, in the beginning of his ministry, he goes into hostile territory, the city of Samaria, and he sits by a well where there's a woman, a well, a woman whose well was empty. And her well was empty, Jesus points out, because she did what the text was saying here. She used her sexuality for comfort and power, and therefore she had been with five men and the one, the last one that she was with was not even her husband. And Jesus says, your well is empty. Do you understand this? And it, it starts getting into her. She's bothered. She's amazed because how could someone know her that way? That would point out to her as they're sitting at a well that was deep, your well, my lady. Is empty, isn't it? And she, right at that moment, she realizes that she's talking to someone she had never talked before. Someone that was very different than all the lovers that she had pursued in her life. Here is a man worth falling in love with and giving myself to. And in Jesus' conversation with her, he will not let her go without facing her story, which means this, that you have to 
revisit your story. Some of you are running away from your story of brokenness. It's a lot of weight and a lot of shame. and Maybe not even your spouse, I would assume to think here, knows your story. They see what comes out on the surface. They see the ring, but they don't know that the hog is right underneath the surface. What we want to do here is not to say stop it, but why are we doing the things that we do? What explains my behavior today? What is it? Why is it that you can't break free from an addiction to pornography? What is it? Why is it that you are going from one man to another, to another, to another? What's underneath the surface? You must ask the question. Because that's what Jesus wants to get to. And he's wanting to have that level of conversation with you at the soul level that you would understand your story. Because it's only when you do that you can truly find what he has to offer. And you can truly see in him the ultimate lover that your heart really is looking for, regardless if you're a man or a woman. Because Jesus' follow-up words to that woman were these. Everyone who drinks of this water, he's pointing to the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give them will become in them. In them, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Look at how these two passages connect. He is the perfect lover that you've been looking for. He is the reason for your disappointment in your spouse. He is the reason in your disappointment in the fact that you haven't found anyone yet. Because he's missing, everything will be missing. But if he's found, everything will be found. Give me an amen, brother. I saw you there. Everything will be found. And he is the perfect lover. Why is he the perfect lover? Let me give you some reasons why he is. Because number one, he delights in you. You hide your face from your own story and your own brokenness. Other people hide their face from your own story and from your brokenness. But he won't. The Bible says that you are his poem. With all the baggage, with all the shame, he delights in you. Uh, Number two, he has covered you. He has covered your shame. On the cross, Jesus takes upon himself your shame, everything that has caused you shame, all of that. And he faced it so that you could be covered with his righteousness. He gave himself to you. No lover in this life will give themselves to you at the level in which Jesus has given himself to you his whole life. And then ultimately, he will never abandon you. The Bible is very clear to say that your father and mother may forsake you, but he never will. He never will. Regardless if there's brokenness right now or in the future, he is vowed to stay by your side. He is the perfect lover. All other earthly lovers may tell you, I will go through the depths for you and up to the skies. That's silly. They can't help it, but that's not true. But here's one that will, that will, and he has. And to the degree that you fall in love with him, not only, not only will he satisfy you, and you may finish your life as a single person, and that's okay. You you can still have the same level of love and intimacy that's available to people who are in marriage relationships because he will fill and satisfy you 
to the degree that you don't feel satisfied by your spouse, he supplements it. It's an ever-flowing fountain from within. And he will make you a better lover to your earthly lovers because you will love like he does. And it will always be redemptive. And so the only application to this, the only hope that we have today to cast forth is to fall more in love with Jesus. It's not about trying harder. It's not by finding a different partner. The problem is not the partners. The problem is, 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 is not the circumstances. The problem is that we are not in love with Jesus as we should be. And so if you want the power to be freed from any addiction, if you want the power to restore a broken sexuality in the context of your marriage, if you want the power to wait until God places the right person in your life for full commitment, you fall in love with Jesus and nothing else. And so he is inviting all of you here today with his open arms. Will you fall in love with me? And if you do, you will soar, you will sail, you will thrive. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Jesus. How he has presented in the Gospels. We confess our brokenness and our insufficiencies and our longings and our desires and our unmet expectations and our frustrations. We come before you today and we ask that you would fill us, help us, as Ali prayed even, to fall more in love with you. That's what we need. That's what we need here today. Give us that power. Give us that ability in Jesus' name.